Okay, uh, first question reads, it seems we are living under another beastly power, similar to Daniel living under Babylon or Jesus living in Jerusalem. According to the following Ellen White quote, and based on Jesus Daniel's example, uh, how would you think we should be responding? And I, I, this, this quote is great. Um, Desire of Ages 509. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reform. He attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments. Not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and regenerate the heart. This is what uh, the beautiful, I guess we should have just posted that and read it every week for the last three years. Because that's what I've been trying to say. So, so beautifully stated. So wonderfully stated. Everything, you go back and read our blogs, this is what I keep calling people's attention to. You can't win God's cause using Satan's methods. Uh, every government of the world is Satan's government. Every one of them. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And if we try to do social justice through human governments, we advance Satan's kingdom. We only do social justice through what it says here, affecting and regenerating hearts. That hearts love God and love people more than self. And the only way to take that forward is person to person, individual to individual, sharing the gospel message with people, leaving people free, truth presenting love, leaving people free. It's a wonderful quote. Next question. Uh, when and how might Enoch, Moses, Elijah, and those resurrected with Christ have obtained their cleansing and fitness for heaven? Are they exempted from the exec- uh, investigative judgment? Did you hear the question? When and how might Enoch, Moses, Elijah, and those resurrected with Christ obtain their cleansing and fitness for heaven? Are they exempted from the investigative judgment? Are you stumped? (laughs) Got me. That's a great question. Uh, th- these are the kind of questions you ne- we need to be able to answer. Um, the, uh, the, the feast days of, of Old Testament that came annually, they did not describe the individual's salvation. They described the entire um, plan of salvation from beginning to end and the ultimate bringing to the end at the end of time, the, um, the corporate cleansing or the cleansing of all the people at the end of time. Uh, all these individuals, Moses, Elijah, Enoch, and anybody resurrected in heaven right now, they uh, individually had the same experience. They were one to trust, which is what the sanctuary message teaches on an individual level. They were one to trust, and thus they brought their sacrifice to the bronze altar. Their, their, their divided heart, bronze, a divided metal, okay, with divided heart, received the, the blood of Christ, and thus it became a purified heart. So now in the system, it's no longer the bronze heart or the bronze altar. It's the golden altar because now it's, it's the character of Christ. It's the golden altar, and this is the, the church. And so those individuals became loyal and faithful to God, and their hearts were renewed. And then uh, in that process, they individually experienced the writing of the law on the heart and mind, which is in the most holy place in the box. He, he, uh, he took um, those who um, uh, partook the, the, the manna or the word, 
Okay, ingesting the word, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part from me. They're one to trust. As they open their heart, God writes his law on their hearts and minds. And then those who are dead in trespass and sin, like the dead rod, they become alive and begin bringing out peaceable fruits of righteousness, like the rod of Aaron began bringing out fruit. Okay, and so these individuals experience the entire plan of salvation, which is acted out in the symbolic system. Uh, as an individual, what happens in the day of atonement or the, the day of reconciliation or the day of healing um, is describing what's happening through the plan of salvation through Earth's history. At the end of time, all like Moses and Enoch and, and Elijah and others who have placed their trust in Christ have their individualities healed and cleansed and have uh, themselves prepared to meet Christ when he comes again. So the uh, the the investigative judgment is really describing the the conglomerate group of people at the end of time but yes they all go through the same thing yes if they get new bodies like we will get yep they've already got that yep yep so they're that's my understanding i don't believe they can be operating there without it yeah yep but then when they came back on the mountain that's why they were shining like a sun yeah i guess so okay yeah uh the ten commandments say not to commit murder self-defense is not murder so do you think God would be okay with self-defense? What's the first question we ask with questions like this? What law lens? So if we look through a human law lens, that sounds reasonable. If we look through design law lens, though, do you have other possibilities coming to mind? Well, did Jesus give anything to indicate that? If, if, uh, if an enemy strikes you in the cheek, you are righteous to strike them back. Oh, turn the other cheek. Interesting. Huh. When Jesus was taken and arrested, he said specifically, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. Hmm. So if you're looking through the eternal lens, the design law lens, what is God's primary concern for people? That if somebody is about to stone you wrongly, Stephen that Stephen should stand up, pull out a Uzi submachine gun, and defend himself. With that, if we could have dropped an Uzi submachine gun into Stephen's hands at that moment, and he was being unrighteously killed, wouldn't he have the right of self-defense in that moment? In the worldly view? Would it have been godly for him to use his Uzi submachine gun to kill all the people stoning him? Would God have had him do that? No. Why not? Why not? Because it would change something inside of him. Thank you. Say it, say it, say it. He would, it would change something inside of him if he felt that anger to, to lash back. That's exactly something inside of Stephen would have changed, number one. Number two, though, in the great controversy, did God love the people stoning Stephen less than he loved Stephen? Did he love them just as much? Did he want any of them to be saved like Stephen was saved? But at that moment in time, who has eternal security? What about those stoning him? So from God's perspective, which is the one that, while you don't want any harm to come to them, if they were to go to sleep in the first death, it's okay, because they'll be resurrected and have eternal life. And which ones, if they went to sleep in the first death, lose their chance to repent and come to eternal life? Ah. So, from a godly perspective, you got to really be careful with questions like this. You got to really be careful. 
You really do. If love is operating in the heart, and you really love, and, and this is where, where I struggle. I will tell you, I struggle. I, I understand it, but God's got work to do in me still. But if, if, you're, if you were in a circumstance where your child was attacking you, and you could stop them by killing your child, would you kill your child to stop them? Kill them to stop them? Self-defense. Some would. Some wouldn't. So the circumstances, I think, play a lot. I don't think you can create a rule. I think people like rules. It makes them feel safe. But rules are not how God runs his government. Okay, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Please explain the focal point of Christ's death, which opened the door for us uh, to live God's design law. So as I understand it, uh, I'm going to go through this really briefly. Uh, If you're interested... Um, just email or request that, and I'll send you a link to a Sabbath school class we did a quarter or so ago where I went in great detail, like 45 minutes over the, uh, what Christ achieved at his, his death. So I'll go over it very fast right now. But it, it's all how you diagnose the problem. If you have the wrong law model, then Adam and Eve's sin was a legal problem, which put them in legal trouble and put them on metaphorically death row, which required God to pronounce them guilty and God uses power to execute them. And so something had to be done in order for God to be able to legally be able to pardon them and not kill them. And so somebody had to come take their place. And he, Jesus came, took our place legally and, and was killed and executed by his father on the cross so that, that his, right, his righteous wrath could be vented, et cetera, et cetera. It's all corrupt. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't change, his law didn't change, but the condition of humankind changed. They are now out of harmony with the law that life is built to operate upon. They have a terminal condition, they're dying. The only way for life to exist is to be reconciled back to perfect harmony with God, to have his living law restored into the species human. Jesus came to, to do that for the species and to simultaneously open an avenue that we could partake in that. As a human being, he was he, he partook of the, the human species condition through Mary. Thus, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And he faced the temptation of the carnal or fallen nature in Gethsemane when he had human feelings tempt him with fear and anguish to not go through the cross, to act in self-interest, to protect and save himself. But with every temptation, he exercised faith in his Father and love for us, And he would not use his power to protect himself, but trusted his father with the outcome and gave himself freely in love, thereby in the humanity that he assumed, he destroyed or killed at the cross the infection of fear and selfishness. Thus, in Jesus Christ, a new human was created that was sinless and perfect as God intentionally designed. And the species human was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a sinless human who never deviated from God's law and perfectly lived it out and eradicated fear and selfishness. Simultaneously, he revealed the truth about God and God's methods, exposing Satan's lies that win us to trust. And when we're one to trust, we open the heart, and he says he pours his love and his spirit into us. Jesus said that when I go, the comforter will come. He won't speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. And thus, when we trust God... We get new motives, new desires, new uh, insights and wisdom. These all come from Christ who worked them out for us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so he, if you want to use the scripture text that tell what he did, Hebrews 2.14, he destroyed him, by his death, he destroyed him, holds the power of death that is the devil. By, life eternal is knowing God. Knowing God. So Satan's power of death are the lies he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So he revealed the truth to destroy the lies, which destroys the devil's power of death. 
Okay? But it also says that in Timothy that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Death is caused by deviation from God's law. The law of life. If you're out of harmony with the law of life, it'd be like you, you break the law of respiration and tie a plastic bag over your head. Breaking the law of respiration causes death. You're out of harmony with the law. The law that life is a little bond. So human beings and Adam are out of harmony. We have eternal, we're dead in trespass and sin. Christ destroyed death by destroying the infection of fear and selfishness that causes death and restoring the law of love back into the species human. And the only outcome of that, the outcome of that predictable outcome, is life. So he could tell his disciples, I'm going to go die, but I'm going to rise again. Because he's going to eliminate the death-causing principle and restore in the life-causing principle. And that's what happened. And then it says he came to destroy the devil's work in 1 John, I think it is. Yeah, 1 John, he came to destroy the devil's work. And we just read in our class today that the devil has labored or worked to efface the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God should be. And and Christ destroyed that. He restored the image of God in man. So that's what he came to do. All right, uh, let's see. Jesus said if he didn't leave, the comforter would not come. Why not? The Spirit was working with the disciples uh, when Jesus uh, was here on prior to the cross. Yeah, this is another great question. A lot of great questions. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. You read about it in Psalms and other places. So why wouldn't the comforter come if Jesus didn't leave? Why? Was there like a, um, it's like one of those uh, wrestling matches. You have to tag out. Tag out, your turn. Is that why? Design law, folks. How reality works. How does the Holy Spirit work? Is the Holy Spirit the spirit of bombastic intrusion? Still small voice. Does the Holy Spirit come uh, uh, where it is rejected and not wanted? So if Jesus had stayed on the earth with his disciples in person, and questions arose, like arose in, in the First Corinthians text about whether they sh- all the things that they should put on the Gentiles, all the Jewish stuff, their questions arose. If Jesus was on the earth, how would those questions have gotten answered? Every question would have gone to papal headquarters. Everybody, no, nobody, it would have been, Jesus said, I believe it, that settles it. Jesus said, I be-. nobody would have done thinking. Nobody would have searched scripture. Nobody would have prayed for wisdom. Everybody would have gone to the teacher for the answer, yes or no. And therefore, the Spirit wouldn't have come because nobody would have opened their hearts to receive the Spirit. It's very straightforward. Do people have a relationship with Satan just as Christians have a relationship with Christ? And does Satan know he is getting defeated? And if so, is he lying to his followers or what if he offers people... To get, or what does he offer people to get, get them to follow him? I just don't understand what the benefit of choosing a life for Satan gets you, and I want to know what people believe they are getting out of it. So, yes, people do have a relationship with Satan. Absolutely. But they, uh, they almost never, never, there are a few, there are a few Satanist cults out there, and they actually worship Satan. The vast majority have a relationship with Satan worshiping some other god. They might be worshiping Allah. Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus. Or the biggest deception, they're worshiping themselves. Or they're worshiping themselves. Angels. Or angels. They're that, so, yes, Satan rarely, rarely gets worshipped as Satan. 
It's not the name that you look at, it's the character and the methods. And those who believe in a God who made up rules and must use his power to inflict punishments and kill the rule breakers in the end, they're worshiping Satan's version of God. That is not God. The Bible does not teach that view. And so what do they, what, what, why would people do this? What are they getting offered? Well, what, they're getting offered a certain uh, sense of false security. Well, I've confessed all my sins. Jesus paid the price. Uh, I, therefore, I'm good. And, and the Bible teaches that I'm declared to be righteous, even though I'm not. So I, so I can have all my sins, past, present, and future, put on Jesus and paid for. And I can live any way I want. And I can still go to heaven. There's a lot of things that people get offered by Satan that appeals to them. Okay, uh, this one says, this is an interesting quotation from Ellen White. Uh, it's actually a very neat quotation. You can find it in Second Selected Messages 142. Second Selected Messages 142. I'm really glad the person put this in here. I hadn't seen this one before. It says, the work of the people of God is to prepare for the events of the future, which will soon come upon, I think this was written in 1903, uh, which will soon come upon them with blinding force. In the world, gigantic monopolies will be formed. Men will bind themselves together in unions with, uh, that will wrap them in uh, the folds of the enemy. A few men will combine to grasp all the means to obtain in certain lines of business. Certainly wouldn't be anything named after a river or a jungle, would it? That's Amazon, folks. trade unions will form and those who refuse to join the unions will be marked men my question is about unions Uh, they don't appear to be playing a big part these days what is your view about trade unions in world events at the moment so first off I think this quotation you should look at the principles in this quotation the principles in this quotation it's so prescient have you not seen the massive global corporations taking over everything, stifling autonomy and individuality, crushing innovation, uh, all for profit? It is amazing what's happening. And, the, and so the, the real idea here is um, whether it's the trade unions or the, in, the industries that become so monopolized, it's stifling um, liberty, Taking away your freedom, coercing, mandating, pressuring you. I will tell you one of the things that, uh, that is, uh, I've been grieving in my soul over the last two years is the corruption and corporation of the practice of medicine. It used to be a noble profession, and on an individual level with an individual practitioner, it still can be. But the corporation of medicine is big business big finance, big money, and it is not interested in your health. It is not interested in, it is interested in um, making money is what it's interested in. It's quite corrupt what we've seen, and it's certainly not interested in truth, and it's certainly not interested in open, open debate and discussion. There are individuals that are, to be sure, many individuals that are, but the corporation of medicine is interested in power and control. And I'm, not, I'm talking the big institutions. I'm talking the, the professional societies. Talking about unions, I would say professional societies. I've been quite disappointed in the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association, state governing boards in many of the states uh, that govern the practice of medicine and the, and the way they have been bullying and pressuring practitioners to, to conform and not use good medical judgment anymore and not follow the evidence but follow authoritarian rules coming out of governmental institutions that are not backed by actual science. It has been 
been so corrupt. And this is the same dynamic happening in the business world and with the unions. It's about taking away liberties. So um, if you're involved in any, any, whether it's a union or a professional society, anything that begins to coerce and pressure you to take your liberties, that's what you need to watch for. God's blessing. I'm wondering at what age Jesus came to understand, to the understanding of being God, the creator of everything around him, uh, and uh, if he remembered doing this. I, I guess you can ask that question when you see him, because uh, I don't have any direct evidence or any inspired reference that would tell me when he had that type of self-awareness. I think we can say at least by the age of 12, because we have one recorded account where he had that insight at 12, but did he have it at age 6, at age 4, at age 3, at 2 months? We don't know. Uh, how is the story of the stoning of Shelomith's son commanded by God in Leviticus 24, 10 to 23 explained through design law lens? And what does it mean to blaspheme in the name of God? Jesus was accused of blasphemy, and yet we know the accusations are false. Okay, so several questions here. I've gone over the questions about the Old Testament stoning many, many times. I'll say it again very briefly. Um, Back in, I guess, 1991, after Desert Storm or Shield, or maybe it was 94, after um, uh, Enduring Freedom, one of those, one of those times, when we were occupying Iraq, okay, and we, we, and we in Baghdad established green zones in the city, and there were non-green zones outside the city. And in the green zone, we had a, a U.S.-appointed American citizen governor for a while in the city, Okay, and therefore U.S. law was governing in the city. During that time, a local um, Baghdadi grocery store owner and his two employees were killed in a firebombing um, and uh, because they um, violated a fatwa and, and an a order put out by a local mullah or cleric that they should not display celery and tomatoes next to each other because they represent something um, sexually inappropriate, evidently. Um, but they did that, and therefore the store was firebombed and they were killed. Now, you're the governor in Baghdad. You discover this. In your personal judgment, which is worse, celery stalks next to tomatoes or driving drunk? Driving drunk. If the locals believe that celery stalks next to tomatoes are a crime that's worthy of a death penalty, which they just enacted upon their own citizens and their own neighbors, and you want them to take driving drunk seriously, what penalty were you going to have to give it? The death penalty. That's what you're reading about in Leviticus. These people just came out of slavery, and slaves could be killed for the minorest thing, and they were killing for the minorest thing. And therefore, for God to get them to take seriously the things he needed to get them to take seriously, he had to meet them where they were and lead them to where he wanted them to be. And where did he want them to be? When the woman was caught in adultery and they picked up stones, what did he say? You, without first without sin, cast the first stone. And so he clearly did not want them to live and practice this way. And this is uh, the reality. You can't win people by a system of rules. You just can't do it. Okay, what does it mean to blaspheme? Uh, my personal view, blasphemy, is um, taking the, the, the name of the Lord and misrepresenting him and claiming powers and authorities and abilities and, and so forth that, that are, are not yours to claim um, and so forth, I think. So blasphemy, misrepresenting God, uh, presenting God in. So if you were to say God is such and such a way and he's not, I think that's blasphemy. God is the source of pain, suffering, and death. God will kill you if you don't. I think that's a form of blasphemy, misrepresenting God. 
Uh, the word investigative judgment suggests God doesn't know all. Why does God have to investigate? Doesn't he already know everything? I would encourage you to... Uh, well, I don't have it right here. Go to our website, type in investigative judgment, go to our document uh, that, that you can read online, um, the investigative judgment uh, for the modern world. Investigative judgment, heavenly sanctuary, investigative judgment for the mild, modern world. Just type in investigative judgment. Read it online this afternoon. Uh, it'll explain all of those things. Um, there are many theories about it. The investigative judgment is not God investigating things he doesn't know. That is from the penal legal view, from the healing model view. It is all about God healing and preparing his people to meet him. But it will explain it in quite detail in that document. Many say God murdered at the flood. Would it be better to say God used self-defense uh, and was not murdered? No, it would not be better to say that. Uh, go and type in the flood. I have two documents. Read both documents on the flood on our blogs, on our website. Go into long length explaining how the flood was a therapeutic action on God's part to keep open the plan of salvation and to protect us from Satan's assault to destroy the image of God in us. I mean, this was all therapeutic. It was all action, uh, like a doctor cutting out a cancer. Uh, and every death in the flood uh, was simply a sleep death, and all those people be raised in the proper resurrection. So uh, go and, and type that in. Uh, I need some help bringing these two thoughts into congruence, um, uh, into a congruent thought. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And for what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit which is in man. If we can't know the, our heart, how can we know our spirit? Thank you for all that you do. So you don't want to read a little here and a little there and take texts and kind of conflate them and merge them together. The heart is uh, in, in Scripture is really talking about the mind, where you do your thinking. okay? And the spirit has many definitions, uh, and the spirit um, uh, can mean um, breath of life. It can mean the Holy Spirit. It can mean your attitude. It can mean um, the, the, the Greek word translated spirit in the Hebrew. It can mean an apparition. Uh, when they saw Jesus walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. Okay? Um, I thought it was an apparition. That was the same word as spirit and Holy Spirit. So when you get the word spirit, it has a lot of applications. You need to look at the context. In this particular case, um, uh, for who can know the things of man save the spirit of man which is in him? It's talking about you can't read somebody else's mind. You can't really know the true intentions of another person's heart. Um, but the uh, spirit of man, which, is, uh, which, which can know, doesn't mean it always does know. And the human heart is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked. Yes, without the Holy Spirit enlightening our spirits or minds, we won't actually have a true awareness of our own character. So I'm not, I don't think this is suggesting you and your own power can actually diagnose and understand your own nature. I think that it's saying that the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind with truth, and then you can actually know your own heart, but other people can't. And in that knowledge, then you can come uh, to, uh, to true repentance. So... All right, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the way your kingdom works, and we ask that your spirit will be poured out, lightening our minds, leading us to know ourselves more fully in the areas in our lives that we need to change, and then how we can be effective in your kingdom at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.